Uh, a few weeks back, he asked me if I wouldn't mind covering for him this morning as we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. A really great passage of scripture here this morning. And uh, I got to admit to you, when uh, Pastor Rick first asked me to preach on this passage of scripture, and I uh, opened my Bible to take a look at it, uh, I, I, I it, it reminded me of my first trip to Disneyland as a kid. Now, I don't know if any of you remember, uh, those of you who have been to Disneyland, your first trip, but I remember walking through the gates of Disneyland, and the first uh, sensation I felt was just being totally overwhelmed because it was like, where do you start, right? I mean, it's like you got the rides, you got the attractions, you got the characters, and it's like, where do you even begin? And you basically just got to plow right into it, die right into it, and get going, and uh, you eventually work your way through everything. Well, that's kind of how I felt when I began to start study this passage of scripture this morning for this morning because there's so much good material in here. So we're basically just going to dive right in and start working our way through and uh, trust that God will hopefully uh, bless us as we look at this great passage. Now, uh, before we begin looking at the passage together this morning, I want to remind you of some context as to how this passage fits into the rest of the letter of 2 Corinthians. Most of this letter by the Apostle Paul is primarily a response by Paul to a group of false apostles who had invaded the Corinthian church that Paul had founded. And these false apostles had leveled numerous criticisms against Paul in his absence. In particular, the claim that he wasn't qualified or uh, competent to be an apostle of Christ. And in their criticisms, they had led many in the church to abandon Paul as their spiritual mentor, uh, along with the true gospel he had proclaimed among them. And so here in chapter 12, we pick up with Paul continuing his reluctant response to these false apostles. And it's a reluctant response because really, in Paul's mind, he has nothing to prove. Okay, Whether talking spiritually or even being judged by the worldly standards of the false apostles. We saw last week in chapter 11, Pastor Rick, as Paul started going through, hey, you want qualifications? I got the qualifications. Unfortunately, though, there were many in the Corinthian church who had bought into the slanderous accusations and charges against him. And so Paul here, again, is compelled to silence his detractors. Now, one of the chief arguments that Paul's detractors in Corinth were apparently making against him was that he could not be a true apostle of God because they claimed he had never had a supernatural experience or special revelation from the Lord, as they were apparently claiming for themselves. And so Paul here now moves on to addressing this charge, attempting to win back the confidence of those who had bought into these false apostles and their claims against him. Now, if you would, I'd like for us to read this passage together this morning, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. And then after we read the passage, I want to come back and make some observations about what Paul shares with us here. You'll see the the passage on the screen behind me, otherwise you can follow along in your Bible. Paul says this, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, 
things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, friends, as I said a minute ago, this passage is just full of great material. And it begins here with a fascinating account of an actual trip to heaven that the Lord had allowed Paul to experience. And as I begin this morning, I'd like to land on this trip to heaven for a few minutes and share some observations about this episode in Paul's life and his revelation of it here. Because like all of us, Paul too experienced both the roses and the thorns in his life as a Christian. And for Paul, as for us, our hope in heaven because of Christ really is the ultimate rose. And so I want to look at this experience this morning together. Let me make a few observations about Paul's trip to heaven. The first thing that Paul mentions is that this trip to heaven occurred 14 years ago. 14 years ago. Now this would place this event sometime between Paul's conversion to Christianity and the start of his missionary journeys. In other words, he hadn't yet begun his public ministry. But what's significant about this account is not the exact date of when it happened, but the fact that Paul writes of it here for the first time, 14 years after the fact. Now friends, can you imagine that? Having an experience like this, a trip to heaven, and not saying anything about it for over 14 years? I mean, you know, when people go to heaven today, right, some of those who have had these so-called near-death experiences... When people go to heaven today, what's the first thing they do? Right? They come back and they write a book about it. Right? And they go on TV and they go on a speaking tour. But not Paul. And I think this speaks volumes as to Paul's humility and his priorities in ministry. In fact, in the opening verses here, it almost reads as if Paul is embarrassed for even sharing this story. Unlike the false apostles in Corinth, Paul didn't want people to be drawn to him because of his sensational revelations or the supernatural experiences he had had. He wanted people to be drawn first and foremost to the truth and power of his message, which he called in Colossians 1.23, the hope held out in the gospel. This hope was that Christ had died for our sins and that through him we could be reconciled to God. And that was Paul's priority. And so for over 14 years, Paul had never, not once, spoken of this remarkable event in his life. And I really think that's amazing. And you know, friends, there's an important truth that we can take away from this. Biblical Christianity has never been about the elevation of or seeking out of 
mystical, supernatural experiences with God. Biblical Christianity is about God's personal and rational communication of truth to the world. First and foremost, the truth of His love for us and His plan of salvation as revealed here in Scripture. Sadly, though, there's a growing trend in our world today, even in the church, to pursue God, not through the rational study of His revealed truth to us in Scripture, but rather through the seeking out of mystical, spiritual experiences. Even in many churches today, practices like so-called Christian yoga, contemplative prayer, walking prayer labyrinths, charismatic excesses, these various forms of experiential quote-unquote worship are being elevated and promoted as tools to supposedly help us connect with God. And even though practices like these cannot be found anywhere in Scripture, for many people that is of little concern because they offer them a unique experience with God. Friends, we must be careful, though. And we must remember that God is not the only being active in our world today who can give you a unique spiritual experience. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light seeking to deceive people. And what most people don't realize is that many of these so-called spiritual practices being promoted today are nothing more than ancient paganism repackaged in a Christian veneer. Which again is why we must learn from the Apostle Paul's example and not be quick to run after every new sensational spiritual experience or story. But we must first and foremost be rooted in God's Word. Like the Bereans mentioned in Acts chapter 17, 11, they were called the church in Berea, they were called noble because they tested all spiritual claims and all spiritual teachings by the truth of God's Word. Where does it say that in Scripture? God's Word was their ultimate foundation. Now, the second observation I want to make about Paul's trip to heaven is that Paul says that he was caught up to the third heaven, or paradise. Now, what does Paul mean by the third heaven? In the ancient Hebrew worldview, they actually referred to three levels of heaven. Now, this is not like the Mormon church view of today. You may be familiar with the Mormon church. They're a non-Christian cult, and they actually teach that there are three levels of heaven. And they say that all people will ultimately be saved to one of these three levels of heaven. This isn't what Paul's talking about. In the ancient Hebrew worldview, what they talked about were actually three progressions of heaven. And it was actually pretty logical, really. Uh, the first heaven that they talked about was the earth's sky or atmosphere. And then the second heaven was outer space, the sun, the moon, the stars. And then the third heaven was a spiritual realm which was the dwelling place of God, unseen by human eyes. And Paul here tells us that he was caught up into this third heaven, or paradise, which is what we know today as simply heaven, or the dwelling place of God. It's also where our fellow believers, who have died with a saving faith in Jesus Christ, are living today. And friends, Paul got to see heaven. He was there. Isn't that awesome? He got to see it. In your Bibles, you may see a heading over this section of Scripture titled something like uh, Paul's Vision of Heaven. But friends, please understand something. I don't think this was simply a vision, like some God-inspired dream. 
In fact, I believe it's very likely that Paul actually visited heaven physically in his body. You know, what's interesting about this passage is that Paul himself wasn't quite sure of the nature of this experience. He knows it happened, it was real, but he himself says he wasn't sure if he was taken to heaven physically in his actual body or if he was taken there in spirit. However, there's an important clue in his description of this experience that I believe gives us some unique and interesting insight into this question. Paul mentions here that he was caught up, caught up to the third heaven. And this description of being caught up is actually used twice by Paul in his writings. It's a Greek word Paul uses here. The word is harpazo, and it means to be caught up or to physically take something away. And the only other time Paul uses this term is in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where I believe he describes the rapture of the church. That great event we look forward to where Christ says he's going to return and literally take us up as believers into heaven, where we will be taken up, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, in bodily form. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will all be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Isn't that awesome, friends? The Bible teaches that this is going to happen one day. And my speculation is that the Apostle Paul had already experienced it. Like Enoch and Elijah before him, those two Old Testament heroes of the faith who never died but were caught up, taken up into heaven in bodily form, Paul too says that he was caught up or raptured by the Lord into heaven. And again, this is just my speculation, but we know God has done this before. And we know God's going to do it again. And I believe that maybe, just maybe, Paul got to experience this amazing ride for himself. You know, either way, what we do know for certain is that God allowed Paul to experience a very unique glimpse of heaven. And it changes perspective forever. What did he see and experience there during his vision in heaven? This leads me to observation number three this morning. Paul doesn't give us any details at all about his time in heaven. What? No details? Come on, buddy. You went to heaven and, 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 and you don't give us anything more than this? All Paul tells us about this remarkable experience is that he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. What? Are you kidding me? You go to heaven and that's all we get out of you? I, I mean, I remember the first time I was reading this passage when I was studying the Word for the first time, maybe back in junior high or high school, and I came to this passage in 2 Corinthians, and I got all excited, right? Because Paul's talking about I was caught up into the air, I went up to heaven, and I'm just waiting for Paul to, you know, reveal all the secrets to me, right? What is heaven going to be like? Who's there? What are we going to look like? All, you know, all the secrets of heaven. And then Paul comes to this, I heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I mean, friends, i got to tell you, I felt a little bit ripped off the first time I read this passage. You know? I don't know if you've ever seen those, uh, those t-shirts you can get at uh, tourist traps. You know, my grandma went to Florida, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt, right? You ever seen those before? I actually uh, had my own shirt made up for this morning. My apostle went to heaven, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Right? Now, I, I, I hope God has a sense of humor. I'm in, I'm in trouble, but... Uh, 
Paul doesn't give us any real specifics about his time in heaven. However, we can conclude from his simple statement here that it must have been pretty awesome and spectacular. See, whatever Paul experienced, he either had no words for, or God had forbid him from speaking of it, for it was simply too wondrous for us here on earth to grasp. What we do know, though, is that Paul's visit to heaven illuminated his understanding of eternity and gave him the confidence to live boldly for Christ, even in the face of adversity and threats and even death itself. See, Paul didn't fear death because he knew his ultimate destination as a believer. Paul knew that when Jesus told his disciples in John 14:3, I go to prepare a place for you, Paul knew that this place was real. Because he had been there, he had seen it with his own eyes. Let me read for you some of the things that Paul shares with us about heaven. You know, while Paul wasn't able to fully explain in detail everything he experienced in heaven, he does give us some very profound truths about heaven in his writings. Truths that can inspire us, too, today, with an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at some of the things Paul tells us about heaven. And again, friends, these aren't simply Paul's philosophical musings about what heaven's going to be like. This is what Paul knew. He was confident in these things because he had seen it with his own eyes. He had been there. Take a look back a few pages at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And friends, Paul had seen it. He's not just blowing smoke here. He had been there. He had seen it. Go to the next chapter, chapter 5. Let's read verses 1 and 8. Paul says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Friends, Paul knew this because he had been there. He had seen it himself. Verse 8, he says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Friends, why would Paul prefer to be away from the body? Because he knew that to be away from this body was no big deal because there was something far better waiting for us. And again, he had been there. He had seen it. Look at the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He knew this. He had been there. It was better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul actually taunts death. He says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death? is your sting. Friends, does this excite you? I hope so, man. I hope it excites you because heaven is real. Heaven is real. Paul had been there and it had transformed his entire outlook on life. And what he does tell us about it, he does so for the sake of us too having the confidence to live for Christ in spite of whatever adversity we may face because we know that ultimately this life is just the beginning and God has prepared for us an eternal home in heaven. Paul knew it. He had been there. He believed it. And he was excited about it. Well, now at this point, I'd like to bring our sermon back down to earth. 
Okay, literally, back down to earth. And uh, Paul has basically just blown apart the charges of the false apostles. They had claimed he had never had a supernatural experience to qualify him as an apostle, and Paul basically just shot him down. Okay, you want a supernatural experience? I went to heaven. Top that, buddy. All right? Shoots these guys down. However, what Paul reveals next is that this trip to heaven was costly for him. And this is where Paul returns to the other theme of our sermon this morning. The reality of the thorns of life. And yet even here, Paul tells us that we have hope in Christ. Let's read together verse 7. Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. You know, like most of us, God knew that Paul, too, was susceptible to pride. And so to keep Paul from thinking too much of himself because of his experience, which was basically the era of the false apostles boasting about their spiritual experiences, God allowed Paul to be tormented with a thorn in the flesh. Now, friends, we're not really sure what this thorn was that Paul struggled with. There's been a lot of speculation about it throughout church history. Some have suggested it was a physical ailment that plagued him. Catholic tradition says it was a personal moral struggle. Others think it could be a reference to all the false apostles and theological attacks that Paul had to contend with throughout his ministry. Probably the most prominent view, though, is that Paul was likely plagued with bad eyesight. There are a few clues throughout his writings that lead scholars to this conclusion. But friends, in any case, whatever the nature of this thorn was, it's clear here that it wasn't pleasant. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. And in verse 8 we read that he pleaded with God three times for it to be removed. Now I'd like to stop here and make a few comments about this thorn that Paul struggled with. First of all, I think God may have had Paul leave the exact nature of this thorn purposely vague. Why is that? Because, friends, God knows that all of us can relate to having a thorn in the flesh. All of us have our own personal trials and difficulties. Life is hard, and it's sometimes very painful. And I don't know about you, friends, but for me, knowing that Paul, too, struggled with the thorns in life is somewhat of an encouragement. I mean, who among us can't relate to pleading with God about a physical ailment or a moral struggle or about someone in our lives who's hurt us? Friends, God gets it, and he cares. And God's response to Paul's thorn and Paul's reaction to it, which we'll get to in a minute, can be a huge encouragement for all of us. Now, secondly, I think it's important for us to understand something about the spiritual nature of Paul's thorn. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. And you know, friends, there are two equal and opposite errors we can make in regards to the spiritual realm. On the one hand, you can discount its reality and impact on our lives. And on the other, you can have an excessive and unhealthy interest in it. And when it comes to our understanding of Paul's thorn and the thorns in our own lives, we need to maintain a biblically balanced view. For Paul, friends, and sometimes for us, the thorns in our lives can be a spiritual attack from our enemy, Satan. 
However, what we must remember first and foremost, as was true here for Paul, is that Satan has no power over believers that God himself is not ultimately presiding over. You remember the Old Testament story of Job? Satan attacked Job, but only after God first allowed it to happen. And even then, throughout all of Satan's attacks, God tells Job he is still in control. And the same thing is true here for Paul. God has allowed a messenger of Satan to torment Paul, but only for the sake of God's greater purposes in Paul's life. And you can be confident, friends, that should the thorns in your life be of a spiritual nature, God is in control, and he will not allow anything to touch you that is not a part of his divine plan for your life. Now, at the same time, friends, the balance we must recognize regarding the thorns in our lives is that not every ailment, struggle, or trial is an attack from Satan. Remember, friends, we live in a fallen world. All aspects of creation and all people have been tainted with a spiritual disease called sin. And sin leads to disease, depravity, despair, and death. And it touches all of us. Every day. Sometimes the thorns we face in life are simply the result of the fallen world we live in. But even then, friends, we still have hope. We have hope first in the knowledge that God is still in control. And secondly, as we saw earlier, that this world is not all there is. That we have an eternal home in heaven waiting for us. A home free of sin and death and the thorns of this life. The point is, friends, regardless of the nature of the thorns we face in life, in Jesus Christ we have hope. Like that bumper sticker I saw earlier this weekend read, No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. I like that one. It's pretty good. Jesus Christ, friends, really is the Prince of Peace. I hope you all know him this morning. The last thing I want to address regarding this thorn is Paul's pleading with God that it might be removed. In fact, Paul says in verse 8 that he pleaded with God three times for deliverance. Now, the translation here is correct, but it doesn't convey the full picture. In the original language, Paul's pleadings could be understood as three separate, intensive, extensive periods of prayer. In other words, Paul prayed intensely. He prayed fervently over an extended period of time on three different occasions for God to remove this trial or burden from his life. I don't know, can any of you relate to that kind of prayer? I know I can. And how did God respond to Paul's pleadings? To paraphrase verse 9, he said, Paul, I'm not going to remove this thorn from your life. My grace is sufficient for you. In fact, I'm going to leave you with this burden so that my power will be displayed in your life, Paul, through your weaknesses, and the whole world will know, Paul, that you serve an awesome God. You know, friends, I'm not sure that was the answer Paul wanted to hear initially. And I bet he didn't fully understand it right away either. But you know something? Here in 2 Corinthians, later in his life, Paul got it. He got it. And he understood that what initially appeared to be God saying no 
was really God saying to him, Go. Go, Paul. And trust that I am big enough to take care of you even as you live with this burden. And I'm going to use this thorn in your life, Paul, in ways that you cannot even fathom right now. And friends, Paul came to see and understand God's faithfulness. Even when he says no to what we think is best for our lives. This is why Paul could go on to say in verses 9 and 10 that he actually now boasts in his personal weaknesses. Because he had come to understand that God is always faithful. His grace is sufficient for our every need. And it is when we are weak physically or weak in spirit that God comes alongside us and lifts us up and gives us what we need. And he does this so that the world around us can see that we have a God who is faithful and strong and he never lets his people down, even in the midst of the thorns in our lives. Now friends, some of you today might be wrestling with your own thorn in the flesh. Some burden, a trial, maybe a challenge that you're not sure you can bear. And I bet this morning that some of you are here even right now in the midst of your own pleading with God. Jesus, help me. Lord, please save me from this. Some of you today may be wondering if God has even heard your prayers. Because it sure seems like he's not listening. But friends, I promise you, God knows. He hasn't abandoned you. And God has a plan and a purpose for whatever it is you're going through today. And you know, friends, sometimes when we're in the midst of our own hurt and pain, it can be hard to remember and trust that God is in control and that he has a plan for our lives. You know, I think a lot of times we're kind of like that little boy who was walking through town and he saw this poster that said the circus was coming to town. And there was going to be this big circus parade. And this little boy was so excited to see the circus, the poster said the lions were coming. And so the little boy, he had never seen lions before. And so he staked out this great spot right on the street. He was behind a fence, but he was right up against the street, and the fence had this little knot hole in it that he could see things as they passed by. And the day of the parade came to town, the little boy was watching the parade through this little hole in the fence. And sure enough, here comes the parade, and first he sees the clowns. And then come the acrobats, and then the jugglers, and then the monkeys, and then the elephants. And after watching through this little hole for a while, the little boy finally got discouraged and frustrated because he wasn't seeing any lions. Pretty soon he hung his head and he walked away and went back home sad because he thought that the circus poster was full of baloney. There were no lions here. But if only that little boy had climbed the tree behind him and climbed out on that branch where he could have overseen the whole street, he would have seen that just down the road were the lions. They were coming. And you know, friends, like that little boy, we too often only see our circumstances through our own very small, finite vantage point. But if we could see our lives from God's vantage point we would see how in each and every thorn in our lives, God is working to unfold his perfect plan for each and every one of us. And his plan is always good. Jeremiah 29 and 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I think I got that wrong, but you get the gist of it. In Romans 8:28, we read, And we know that in all things God works for the good. 
In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Friends, Paul had come to understand that even in the thorns of life, God is faithful. And even when we feel weak, God is strong. And we can count on His strength to lift us up. This is why, friends, there is hope, even in the thorns of our lives. Because it is when we are weak that God's strength works most prominently in our lives. And I understand, friends, that when you're in the midst of a trial, this reality can be hard to grasp or even hard to accept. But it's in the midst of our trials where God most powerfully meets us. And so in our trials, friends, we all have a choice to make. Will this thorn in my life drive me to become a bitter or a better person? Bitter or better? You know, friends, it's interesting. There's only a one-letter difference between those two words. And that's the I. The I. And the question we must ask ourselves as we face the thorns in our lives today is this. Am I going to focus on the I, on myself, and how bad my circumstances are, and thereby become a bitter person? Or, like Paul, will I focus on Christ and trust in His plan for my life and His strength to carry me on and thereby allow Him to grow and develop me into a better person? Bitter or better? My hope and prayer for you this morning, friends, is that you will choose to hope in Christ, to trust in Him, in the roses or the thorns, and allow His strength to lift you up in the trials of your life and mold you into a better person. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this awesome passage that you inspired the Apostle Paul to share with us. For the truths, Lord, that we have here, the hope in heaven that we have here, the promise that you are with us in the thorns of life, that we can count on your strength to lift us up and meet us even in our weaknesses. Lord, I pray that my friends here this morning would hope in those promises. Lord, for anyone here who's wrestling with a thorn in their life this morning, a trial, a burden, some personal struggle, Lord, and they might feel like they can't even bear it anymore, Lord, I just pray that right here this morning you would come alongside them in a very special way and give them the grace and the strength that they need, Lord. Lift them up this morning. Help them to walk out of here encouraged, knowing that they have a God who is in control, who loves and cares about them, and that His strength will be made perfect in their weakness. Lord, encourage their hearts this morning. Any friends who are struggled with, struggling with a burden here today. Father, thank you for this message this morning. What you have given us through the Apostle Paul. We pray this in Jesus' name.